0: Ago today, the Lean Out podcast launched with an interview with the American journalist Bhatia Angarsargan. Now, 12 months later, Lean Out has listeners in more than 135 countries and 2,900 cities. To celebrate this milestone, our first anniversary, I invited Bhatia back on the show for a conversation about the big stories of 2022. Batya Ungar Sargan's deputy opinion editor at Newsweek and the author of Bad News: How Woke Media is undermining democracy. I'm thrilled to have Batya Ungar Sargon as my guest to kick off a whole new year on the Lean Out podcast.
1: Batya, welcome back to Lean Out. Thank you so much for having me. You have had a real banner year, such a great podcast. And it's just so great to see somebody like you making it and making an impact and having these amazing conversations and just bringing so much necessary conversation to the public sphere. So thank you for all that you do. And I'm so thrilled that um, what started, I think we were the first interview, right? We were, yeah. It just really took off and it's just so thrilling to see. Well, thank you so
0: much. And, you know, it's great to have you back on. We did kick off this podcast with an interview with you about your book, Bad News. And that episode remains the most popular episode out of 63 episodes so far. So great to have you back on. You have also had a very big year. And I have to say, I'm amazed by your productivity. Not only are you deputy opinion editor at Newsweek, but you also publish a lot of your own opinion pieces throughout the media. You do a lot of TV appearances. I want to spend some time talking a little bit about the big stories of this past year. But first, what did you see as the biggest story of 2022?
1: Um, I think probably the war in Ukraine um, in terms of the political impact it had here in a kind of in a domestic way um the economic impact it had on the working class um I think it really was a sort of like it it, obviously like it it was not as big as NAFTA but it it exposed a lot of the same fault lines Mm -hmm. you know elites virtue signaling at the expense of their neighbors who don't have as much money as them, and who will be paying the price for it in terms of gas prices, in terms of food prices. You know, Ukraine is the breadbasket of the world, and so forth. So, I think that that I have to say, like, I, and I, when I talk to working class people, like, God, they're so upset about that hundred million billion dollars and how much we need that here. So, I, I think in terms of like solidifying what America First really means. You know, uh, reintroducing why Trump was so effective and so popular, um, bringing all that to the fore. And then, of course, you know, the geopolitical impact has been huge. I'm a little bit less focused on that because I'm really focused on America. But Mm -hmm. um, I think I think that was probably um, if I had to pick one thing, I would say that was the biggest story of the year. What do you think?
0: Um, from where I'm sitting, I think it's the trucker convoy for for this for this oh, country. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um,
0: but I did, I you know, I did think it was really interesting with Ukraine that I'm kind of amazed at how little debate there's there was on the issue, at least yeah. from here in Canada. And it did seem like the um, anti-war left was was fairly silent on it. Yeah. <laughs> but you you wrote a piece for Compact this summer, feeling Zelensky's war hurts America. And you just tweeted about this recently, too, uh, about how you can look at the Ukrainian people's bravery, resilience, fortitude, but recognize that Zelensky's interests are not America's interests. Talk to me a little more about that.
1: Yeah, I think there's this sort of false dichotomy where people act like you have to, if you want Ukraine to win, which I do, I, I think Russia was wrong to invade, Um That Therefore, you have to accede to every single one of Zelensky's demands and that um, Ukraine must win on Ukraine's terms. And if you don't think that, then you are a Putin stooge or you hate Zelensky. There's a lot of anger at Zelensky on the far, far right. Um, Some of it justified, some of it not. And I just think that's a false binary. Like, I super admire him. I super admire the Ukrainian people for putting up this fight in a way that I think nobody could have predicted that they would have been able to. Their fortitude um, in the face of, you know, what I called a malevolent and godless foe, I I really admire that. I really want them to win, but our interests are not the same as their interests. We're not at war with Russia. Mm. It's very important that we're not at war with Russia um, because Russia does not present a strategic threat to the United States In any real way. And so to go to war with them is to create a threat that we don't have and we don't need. And moreover, our interests are in having a strong working class and having a strong democracy here at home and fueling and funding this war. It harms that it does. So I think what's in America's best interest is to, you know, to to push for a negotiated peace. Um, Which I've been saying, you know, from the beginning, of course, that gets harder and harder because more and more people die on both sides. They're saying now 100,000 dead Russian soldiers, which is horrific. Even more horrific is the, you know, thousands and thousands of dead Ukrainians. So I, I understand why with every person who's killed, Zelensky becomes less willing to negotiate a peaceful settlement. But I just think that's a big mistake. I don't see why it's in America's strategic interest that Crimea belonged to Ukraine rather than to Russia. And I the Donbass when this whole conflict started was an independent region. Um, and Ukraine was not part of NATO when this started for very good reason, because it is a deeply corrupt country, just just deeply, deeply corrupt. And you could say that while still seeing them as the victim in this conflict and still wanting them to win, but there were very good reasons that um, Ukraine was not part of NATO, not part of the EU. And furthermore, there were good reasons for Russia to want them to not be you know, a member in those organizations. So I, I just feel like I totally agree with you that there's been very little debate here, and it's been fascinating to see the left, the anti-war left, just completely go down without a, fi- a fight and join the establishment, the pro-war establishment, um, and the people who are standing up to this, to the to funding Ukraine, are people like Marjorie Taylor Greene. It's it's the MAGA wing. Mm. So, um, I, I to me, that really, really drove home. You know, uh, part of Trump's appeal—he, he, you know, he made two main promises: no more wars and securing the border. You know, build the wall. It was mm-hmm. like no war, build the wall. Like any any politician who says those things, who promises the American working class those two things because those are very important things to the working class and very much in their economic interests, is going to do super well. And unfortunately, it it just seems like you have to be. A crazy person like Trump, in order to understand that, because the political situation in America is such that there is very little debate about war. Um, you turn on CNN and MSNBC and Fox News, and on the topic of Ukraine, there's no difference in how they cover it. And that, mm. that's a big tell. <laughs>
0: mm. So interesting. I I do want to touch on the trucker convoy now. Uh, You published an opinion piece from a trucker. I think it was Gordon McGill was the the first one that I saw. That was the first one that I read directly from that group. Um, You recently interviewed one of the convoy organizers for the Hill, Benjamin Dichter. Our Canadian media got this story very wrong. This became really clear during the Public Order Emergency Commission. You covered this from afar. What, What sense did you make of this story?
1: Well, first of all, it made me for the first time in a really long time feel grateful for the two-party system because, you know, Fox News was very pro-trucker. And the reason they were pro-trucker is because they're anti-liberal establishment, whatever the liberal establishment is, they're on the other side of that. And so we actually had significant support for the truckers in the American media and from people like Ted Cruz, right, from conservative Republican politicians, because, you know, they can see through the left's. BS. Of course, the left can see through their BS, right? So that that sort of dichotomy, the binary, in that moment, I felt really grateful for it. Um, it, it's, it was staggering the way that the uh, Canadian media covered it. It was really, really, truly horrifying, casting everybody as a Nazi. There were two swastika flags. One of them turned out to be, I think, a plant, Gord was telling me the other day. The other one was calling trudeau a nazi right like that that was the whole thing was like they were calling trudeau a nazi for his authoritarianism in imposing the vaccine mandate now i disagree with those comparisons i find them offensive but you're not a nazi for saying that right you're an anti-nazi right (laughs) Um, just in a way that might be offensive to people whose actual families were murdered by nazis but so that thing and that move of calling people racists if they expose the class divide that Mm. leftist elites benefit from, that is the move of the left right now. And so it was really on full display because the truckers convoy was this incredible labor action. I mean, the biggest labor action of my life, you know, just a bunch of working class people saying... These are the conditions under which we're willing to work and none other, and we're going to peacefully and nonviolently resist um, until you take this away. It, it was the stuff of, you know, workers of the world united and the left called them fascists, right? Mm. They, workers of the world united to oppose fascism. Or a fascist diktat, like like a diktat from the regime that demanded you put something in your body you didn't want to do. And they called them fascists for doing that. And it was, I think it was a really, really big moment. I agree with you. Um, And I, it did, it got a lot of attention here. I was so proud to publish Gord McGill. So great talking to BJ Dicta. I really do think that um, these guys who were able to give a sense of the moral credibility of this movement from within. That was really important to me to be part of the people elevating those voices.
0: Mm. It's so interesting seeing how the U.S. media covered it as opposed to even the U.S. legacy media covered it as opposed to how the Canadian media covered it. It's really it is such a hugely divisive issue in this country. Every time I cover it, I lose subscribers still you know almost a no year kidding. later it's a hugely hugely
1: no yeah
0: it's a huge point of contention and the sort of thing that people argue about at dinner parties and it it's just it's been incredibly divisive in this country so I found it really interesting comparing our media's coverage to coverage abroad. And I do think in this sense that international journalists had a little bit more perspective, even though they weren't on the ground, because it was actually really hard in this country as it was all happening to get a real honest sense of what was going on. And a lot of the facts didn't come out to the commission. So,
1: yeah, it's so scary, like the lot when you don't have that sort of polarized media the lock that one perspective can have on the country's perspective, and I think you saw that also. I mean, by the way, with the like the whole COVID uh, situation mm-hmm. in Canada was so much more extreme than it was here because you didn't have a vocal resistance. You know, you did. You even conservatives in Canada, if you know, were are pretty pro lockdown. We're pretty pro regulation. There's a lot less of a healthy debate than there is here. And um, I was at a conference and I met a Canadian. Filmmaker and she was super anti woke, like super interesting. You know, she was working on a film that was like challenging the woke agenda. And when the truckers' convoy came up, she was like, "Oh, they're fascists!" And I, I, I was so shocked. I was said, "I said to her, you of all people should be able to understand why this is, you know, this is a woke narrative that 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 sort of exploded, but is not you.' Know, and she, but she couldn't see it, and I was so surprised by that. And it just is so interesting how COVID. So in America, conservatives were sort of, you know, super anti lockdown anti-vaccine into the sort of freedom side of things. You know, my body, my choice, which they appropriated from, you know, the the, the abortion movement. Um, and then liberals were super into lockdown, super into regulation, super into control. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't really like that across the world. So you go to a place like, you know, Scandinavia, and the left was super anti-lockdown and super into opening up and keeping things normal. You go to a place like Israel, a place like Canada, and even conservatives were Super into locking down and doing as much as possible in Israel. You couldn't walk further than six feet from your front door for much of the lockdowns. Wow, I mean, that's crazy. It is crazy, you know. And and under under it's under a very conservative government. So I just think it's so fascinating. And you know, these issues really make you know a lot of times it's sort of very frustrating to be in this sort of you know the two party system. A lot mm-hmm. of people feel like neither party represents them. But you do you do keep that sort sort of axis of debate, you know, Um, sometimes it's lock jam, but often you do get to have another perspective. And I think with COVID, it was just so important. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. So I wanted to ask you about another sort of big story of the year, and that is Elon Musk and his purchase of Twitter. Uh, You've been quite critical of Musk throughout the year. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm thinking about one memorable piece that spiked why Elon Musk won't save free speech. Walk me through your main concerns about Elon Musk.
1: Um, well, first of all, I don't think you should ever put your your hopes for any kind of ideals or idealism in one person, especially not a billionaire, because they're really good at making money, which is really important. But um, you know, that that really is sort of the gonna be at the end of the day, the their bottom line is gonna be extremely important to them. I think I read a headline the other day that Elon Musk is the first person to lose two hundred billion dollars. And I, I think it's just, you know. <laughs> that that tells you a lot so so a i'm against putting your faith in any one person i'm a populist so i think you should put your faith in your fellow americans and your your fellow people and trust them but specifically with regards to elon musk it really doesn't sit right with me that he has cast himself as some sort of maverick avatar of free speech because of his relationship with China, with the CCP. And, you know, you said you you lose people whenever I lose people, whenever I say this, I know that, uh, nobody wants to hear this like the left hates him because they think that he's you know bringing hate speech back onto Twitter onto this platform that they thought was their playground and the the right you know they love him because he gave them back their voice on Twitter and and I understand why that's important I mean the censorship of conservatives on Twitter in under the old regime was deplorable it was it was terrible and you could see how dumb leftists got because they never had to hear from people they disagreed with. I mean, just over the last five years, they got so much dumber because <laughs> if you're not constantly challenging yourself and hearing how the smartest people who disagree with you think and what the arguments they're bringing marshalling to their side, mm-hmm. you're screwed. I mean, you're screwed because yeah. you just end up sitting there like getting high on your own supply, you know, like sure that you're the... Anyway, so I totally understand that. I think in Twitter, on Twitter, the stuff he's done to Twitter has been been actually really good. Like I love seeing verified people who are just normies. I love seeing that. You know, I think bringing back Trump was really important. Although I lost a bet, and now I owe Charles Love a steak dinner because I was sure that within twenty four hours Trump would have tweeted, which of course he can't because of his contract with Truth Social. But um, Elon Musk is the he's been the number one person to benefit from China's largesse in America. His entire supply chain for every Tesla runs through China. Every Tesla battery is made in China. He his entire fortune is bound up with the CCP, which of course is a repressive, genocidal, autocratic regime that does not believe in free speech. So I I just I just think it's a matter of time before the word Uyghur, for example, is shadow banned on Twitter. He's never said no to the CCP. He actively cheerleads for them, both here and there. He issues groveling apologies when they're unhappy with him. You know, somebody like that he built a, a showroom for Tesla in the Xinjiang region, which is where they're committing genocide against Uyghur Muslims. There's a million Uyghur Muslims in detention centers and concentration camps where they are routinely gang raped. And so it's just – I just feel like what is the point of being a billionaire if you can't tell China – you can't do genocide, right? It, but it was the way he went beyond that. He sanctioned the genocide. It's not like there's a lot of rich people who want Teslas living in Xinjiang. To me, all of this stuff is just really problematic. And, you know, when he goes on saying prosecute Fauci, anti-lockdowns, he loves tweeting this stuff on Twitter. I mean... What about China's COVID zero policy? You know, he never accidentally says anything negative about the CCP. I frequently tweeted him and say, "Well, what do you think about how China handled that or this?" Or it just he'll never reply. Um, somebody once asked him about it on a on a Twitter Spaces. He was instantly saved from having to talk about it by his handlers. So I I just feel very suspicious of the the kind of. The desire to be this kind of avatar of of free speech. Um, I'll just say quickly. I, I think he's, he he's dealing with three sort of competing imperatives. On the one hand, he wants Twitter to make money; wants it to be a profitable business. He sunk forty four billion dollars into it. A lot of that was his own fortune. And Tesla, sort of on the downswing, it's losing value really quickly as it loses that sort of you know first to market share that it had in terms of the um, electric car uh, industry. Um, A lot of people think that Tesla is losing all of this value because he's tweeting, but I, I think it's the opposite. I think that he turned to Twitter as his next venture because he saw this coming down the road. I think he's a really smart businessman. So, you know, he wants it to turn a profit. He also wants it to have more free speech, which I really respect about him. But of course, those are in tension with each other, right? Because swastikas, for example, are protected speech under the First Amendment, Nobody's going to advertise on your platform if it's full of swastikas. Right. So those two imperatives already conflict with each other. And then, of course, there's the third imperative, which is his sort of Trumpy need to be in the headlines every single day and his love of owning the libs, his antipathy for the mainstream media, a lot of which is justified. But that definitely is going to get in the way of both being a free speech platform, because if you are the owner you don't get to be a player as well, right? And then also in terms of making a profit. So I think for all these reasons, you know, his you see sometimes he'll he'll sort of descend into um, very personal vendetta behavior in terms of how he rules. He'll kick people off who just bother him, right? So it's just, you know, don't put your eggs in a person's basket. Don't rely on a billionaire to save you. Like, we can only save ourselves is kind of, to me, the, the lesson here. Mm.
0: I do, I do want to spend a moment on the media, which we we talked about at length last time. And there's a moment that epitomized where we're at with the media right now for me. Um, This is when Lee Fang published that big scoop with the Intercept on the DHS plans to police online speech. Now. Much of the journalism class's takeaway was that Fang is a terrible person because he went on Tucker Carlson to talk about it. What do you make of that reaction? I mean, you're a lefty. You go on Tucker. I'm not sure that everybody understands that there's a huge Democrat audience for that show as well. How do you think through those, those issues that were raised by that?
1: Um, there's just, there's a lot of bullying in, in the left-wing journalism space. I think there's the sort of you feel the desperation of people who are understanding at, at a subconscious level, if not consciously, their own irrelevance. So there's just a lot of character assassination, just very personal and catty and mean-spirited from people who I think don't feel that they have the power and the influence and the reach that they think they deserve. So there's a lot of that. There's a lot of petty envy. There's just a lot of pettiness, and Li Fang is an amazing journalist. Like Matt Taibbi, you know, these are like the best journalists of my generation. Of course, you go on Tucker and spread the word of the hard work you've done, um, because first of all, like you said, he's the biggest audience—not just of Republicans, but also of Democrats, but also. You should talk to everybody. I mean, not everybody, there are limits. I definitely, there were people I said no to, you know, in terms of promoting my book. Um, RT stands out as one of them because they were doing a lot of Holocaust denial at one point. And I won't go on a long list of people I said no to, but you don't say no to everybody. But Fox News is solidly in the mainstream. I mean, solidly in the mainstream. And they may not like that. They're always trying to tell you that Fox News is, you know, Nazis and uh, and and fascism and blah blah blah. It's nonsense. In fact, the whole Rupert Murdoch empire really turned on Trump after January 1st. And you can really see that in the coverage of a lot of the different different shows. So um, I I think that there's just a lot of um, (laughs) somebody I know who's had many different jobs, I don't I forgot to ask him if I'm allowed to share this story but who's worked in many different industries. He was a banker, he worked on Wall Street, he was he wrote fiction, he um you know he's just done a lot of different things. He was a journalist for a while and he told me that of all of the different industries he worked in, journalists are the least impressive, the least curious, the most <laughs> petty, the most obsessed with status and and, you know, and you couple that with what I wrote about in my book, which is that they all come from upper middle class backgrounds where they were sort of promised that they were going to be the elites, the tastemakers, the vanguard, you know, and, and that didn't happen for a lot of them. And the ones that it happened for, they're trying to protect their status and their their space. So I think that um, you see this a lot. There's just, they really don't like when people do real journalism. <laughs> <laughs>
0: It's interesting. I know you you had a panel recently, uh, the the great journalism crisis that you sat on in in Canada. We've had a number of those panels recently. Trust in the mainstream media in Canada is at its lowest point in seven years. Matt Taibbi, Douglas Murray, uh, Malcolm Gladwell, Michelle Goldberg came to Toronto to debate trust in the media. Do you think that we're having a moment of self reflection in the media right now about why we've lost the trust of people?
1: No. <laughs>
0: Do you? Um, I see glimmers of it. I see glimmers of it. I don't uh-huh. I don't think it's a full scale reckoning, no. But I see glimmers. I think
1: that they feel angry about it, but I don't think that they want to face the answers. I think it's kind of like with the Democratic Party, you know, if people don't vote for them, they get really mad at the voters. They never ask, like, what are we doing wrong? Like, what should <laughs> we be doing better? Right. Like it's uh, and I think that's happening with the mean with the mainstream media right now too. There's this sort of like um yeah, I don't I don't really see a lot of self-reflection. <laughs> if anything, it's getting worse, getting worse, you think? Well, yeah, because I think it's become really clear that like what they used to cast as like the sort of Trumpy MAGA deplorables, you know, Hillary Clinton famously said, you know, 25 percent of his of his voters are like or was it 50%? You know, she limited the percent of people, I think it was 50% in the basket of deplorables. Now I think that they are unconsciously, at least, it it seems to me that is becoming clearer and clearer that it's not just 50% of Republicans who think that the left has gone too far, who oppose open borders, who oppose teaching kindergartners about, you know, Transgender issues and sex ideology that it's not just 50 percent of Republicans. It's like 90 percent of Republicans and 50 percent of Democrats. I mean, I think that that's really the 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 thing that's really coming out is that like the normie position, which is like not racist, not sexist, truly believes that everyone should live in dignity, but thinks that the left has lost its mind, you know, that that kind of classical liberal position socially conservative economically protectionist is way bigger than they might think and it's mm-hmm. getting harder and harder to ignore that that that's how i see it and but i think that they're having this kind of instead of you know reckoning with that and being like well actually that's who we should be serving you know there's this kind of like th- they just keep shrinking the people they're appealing to to an ever more pure set And an ever more affluent set, because then they don't have to worry about numbers as much. I think that's really what's what's happening. You do see on CNN, I think they're trying to to re to under Chris Licht, they're trying to really rewrite, rewrite the direction of the boat and be more centrist. But I don't know, it it doesn't seem to be going very well to me.
0: (laughs) Well, just to close, Bachi, I wanted to spend a moment talking about working class politics. Uh, One of the things I love about your work is how hard you strive to seek out and platform working class writers. I'm thinking about someone like Charles Stalworth, the railroad worker and his work. Um, Talk to me a little bit about this next project that you're embarking on now, this new book, Unpromised Land, Searching for the American Dream in the Blue Collar Heartland.
1: Yeah, I, I just, when I was promoting my last book, I kept kind of reaching for a book that would do what this book was doing, which is like I was trying to explain to people how working class Americans see things, like why they don't want to be on welfare, like why that's not an answer for them, you know, why they even if they're liberal, they're resistant to a lot of the trans ideology, you know, why, if they're liberal, they still see the, the border as really important and having a border is really important and limiting immigration is really important. And I I just couldn't quite, there was nothing out there that I could say, read this. This will explain to you the role that autonomy has in working class thinking, you know, I wanted like a profile of the American working class that I could send people to and be like, this is what journalists used to be part of and who they used to speak to. These people are still here and we've abandoned them, you know, the elites Mm. on both sides. So, but it didn't exist. I, I just couldn't find anything that was like character driven that really gave you a sense of the struggles and the triumphs of working class life. I think a lot of the times we think of the working class as the poor, but they're not. And in fact, their interests are in tension with the interests of the poor, Um, Because the dependent poor, of course, rely on government services, which are paid for by taxes, which are paid by people who are working. So, you know, in a lot of and a lot of working class people actually have dependent poor people in their lives who they are supporting. They just have a very different relationship with With the idea of a welfare state. And I found myself trying to explain this to liberals so much, like how they would say to me, like, the Democrats are still the party of, you know, the bottom, you know, whatever percent, people making under $50,000 a year. You know, it's like, yeah, they're the party of the very rich, you know, liberal elites, right? It's 65% of people making over 500K a year are Democrats now, right? And they're the party of the very poor. You know, the dependent poor, people who rely on on government services. But that you're what about the middle 80%? Like they really have no one to to, to vote for because I mean, except for Trump, the, the Republicans have always been about the free markets, the trickle down. That doesn't reach them, that doesn't help them. But the Democrats are sort of bifurcated into the sort of the rich and the poor, and that doesn't help them either. And so I really wanted to a way to explain to people why the way we talk about the economy on both sides. has erased the most important part of our economy, the most important workers in our economy, the people whose labor we truly rely on to exist. You know, if I didn't go to work tomorrow, like nothing would happen if the entire journalism cast just disappeared. Like everyone would survive, you know? But if like the truckers stopped working tomorrow, we would starve. We would literally starve, right? So I, I just, that's kind of what I'm trying to do with the book. And I hope that it's sort of taken in that, in that, in that way.
0: Mm. Well, I can't wait to read it. (laughs) Thank you. So nice to catch up with you again. Thank you so much for making the time.
1: Thank you so much, Tara. Have an amazing year and just keep doing what you're doing. It's so great.
0: Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you value independent journalism, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com.